0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network in British Studies. I'm Tyler Yank, the host of the channel. Today, we're talking to Dr. Monica Matfeld, professor at the University of Northern British Columbia, about her new book, Becoming... Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network in British Studies. I'm Tyler Yank, the host of the channel. Today, we're talking to Dr. Monica Matfeld, professor at the University of Northern British Columbia, about her new book, Becoming Centaur, 18th Century Masculinity and English Horsemanship, published in 2017 by the Pennsylvania State University Press. Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Tyler. It's, It's an absolute pleasure. Um Monica, I wonder if you could begin the show by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: So I began my interest in horses quite young. <laughs> uh, I was a typical girl growing up, you know ponies, 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 and uh, like many, that interest didn't ever go away so i've always been a bit horsey in nature and um once I started at university the 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 sort of connection between my natural interests. And academic work just seemed a logical connection. So there's that. And then um, my degrees, if, if you, I guess, would like to hear about those, um, my, my undergraduate degree and my master's degree are both in history, so just general history. Um, and my PhD is in English literature. So it's a bit of an interdisciplinary approach to the
0: subject. So then with your new book, how did you come to write about horses and men?
1: It was simply something that no one had really taken a good in-depth look at. And it was a question that kept coming up again and again and again when I was looking at the, the primary sources. So you have a whole genre of um, publications dedicated to how to interact with a horse, how to ride a horse, um, how one should look when astride a horse, for example. And these, and these publications um, stretch right back into the 15th century. But what it actually meant for the people interacting with the horses, so in most cases, men, um, wasn't a question that had really been looked at as of yet. So it kind of drew me in and sparked my curiosity. And yeah, the book is the product.
0: Wonderful. And it's definitely true that you look at several important male figures in the book, um, who seem to have played significant roles in the evolution of horsemanship. And I know you begin by looking at William Cavendish. So why is he so significant?
1: William Cavendish, um, quite a character, <laughs> bit of a bit of a playboy by all accounts. Um, he is one of the most widely studied of early modern horsemen. So uh, and this is for a number of reasons. Um, one of the reasons is because his approach to horsemanship, his publications on the subject were widely acknowledged to be some of the best European-wide during his own lifetime. So he was considered, you know, the best of the best. Um, and another reason why, for, from the scholarly perspective, is that he wrote a lot. <laughs> so his material is easily accessible. Um, so yeah, he's a bit, of a bit of a leader of the practice, and yeah, scholars, scholars like him.
0: Yeah, and I noticed that he's written, he has written many manuals to this effect. Um, and I found them fascinating to read about. And you, you combine this with magazine sources, paintings, illustrations. Um, how did you, how was it possible to bring all of these sources together to discuss such a, a you know, so many decades of horsemanship?
1: When looking at the history of horses and horse human relationships um you have to go to the to the most interdisciplinary uh, extreme almost that you can um, i argue because many people took the animals in their lives sort of as standard and not worth writing about in many cases um so information about the subject turns up everywhere and you can't sort of put together the pieces in any sort of coherent form unless, yeah, you look at how horsemen had themselves depicted in portraits, for example, or later on in the century, what the, the nation's biting satirists and caricaturists thought about these horsemen um, or what type of information these horsemen were recording in their horsemanship manuals for various reasons, um, for their students to look at and read and learn, um, and also for, of course, perpetuating their own personal image as as masters of the subject.
0: Yeah, and this this idea of the centaur. I have to say, your title is very fascinating. Um, I'm wondering where you um, you know at what point were you deciding that there was this concept of centaurism that you were viewing you know, however, theoretically in the work, how did you draw that out?
1: I had an inkling it was there right from the get go. And that is because of my own experiences working with and riding horses. Um, When it's very odd, but um, scholar and game talks about this a little bit this this moment of absolutely becoming or feeling like you have become one with The animal that you are working with. And it's that she describes it as a centaur moment where both beings are sharing mind and body, if you will. Uh, It's fleeting, but it is seemingly, from a human perspective, um, experienceable. So I suspected when I went to the primary literature that I would see something similar. And while horsemen sometimes um, describe and discuss this experience of becoming centaur in very different ways throughout the 18th century, as as the book illustrates, um, but the language of becoming a centaur and the word centaur itself uh, returns again and again and again throughout the period. So there's obviously a connection being made between the the humans who are riding the horses and the horses themselves that is interpreted in by the horseman as a becoming with this
0: animal in some form. So interesting. Um, and then you do trace this through these different types of, I want to say masculinities that you explore. And some are so the one of the macaroni I I laughed. Could you could you describe how some of these men on horseback, how this identity shifted?
1: Hey, uh, yeah. The, the book tra- The book is sort of organized along four very loose case studies. So it starts out looking at William Cavendish and his sort of Restoration, um, you know, pre Civil War court type of environment and his insistence on honor and the performance of honor through how well he interacted with his horse. And of course, you know, all of the political overtones of that as well. Um, The book then traces how honor shifts and how horsemanship practice shifts in the early 18th century into something that is much more sort of diverse in form so the horsemanship turns into something that is a bit more recognizable um to or a bit more or has a bit more in common with say um you know hunting practices in in the uk today so short stirrups um riding fast that type of thing um and the the masculinity you start seeing discourses of sentiment or politeness and the emphasis upon performing um, one's masculinity before a mixed audience, uh, usually an audience consisting of women as well. Um, but of course, within that and that sort of diversity of masculinities, yeah, you have you have the macaroni figure um, stereotyped as feminine and absolutely incapable by definition of establishing a centaur status it's used as an insult to to horsemen who are perceived to can't ride
0: right and so um you mentioned this but where do women fit into this can a woman be a centaur According to 18th century
1: thought, no. (laughs) Um, Which I, when I was reading it, I was going, oh, come on, surely. Uh, No, absolutely not. Um, Women could ride. And in the mid to late 18th century, women start to have their own riding academies and riding houses and their own publications dedicated specifically to them. But the riding that they are learning is all about establishing and maintaining patriarchal authority. So within feminine and feminized riding spaces, it's usually the male trainer, who of course is in charge, um, and the horse that the woman is on becomes a very odd um, sort of symbolic stand-in for... A patriarchal male figure like the trainer or like her husband and the discourse around how to choose a proper horse for a lady starts to turn up things like the horse must be calm and gentle and of course never upset his rider or her rider His mares were also involved with women riders um and that the horse should protect the the female um, rider at all costs so yeah there is there's absolutely no indication that women were supposed to learn how to become a centaur or learn the riding methods deemed necessary to get there but of course women i think actually did and those that tried came under fire for it public scandal public slander Um, accusations of masculinity or um, being of an unstable sex, you know, that type of thing.
0: Yeah. Um, So where then does militarism fit into this? I see it sort of drawn out through um, kind of the first and second part of your book, especially to do with maybe William Cavendish and this question of honor and masculinity that you, that you touched upon. So
1: to establish a centaur throughout the 18th century actually right from the beginning of the book to to the end so beginning of the century to the end the the type of horsemanship practice necessary to establish a centaur um was intimately connected with the army uh the cavalry and when it shifts to more common hunting type riding methods away a little bit from you know the army, the the centaur discourse also disappears. Um, so throughout the period, to ride a great horse, as it was, as the phrase was often used, um, meant being a part of the military or learning military riding techniques, and of course, then performances of masculinity that go along with it, um, the ability to be a good general, good leader, um, to be uh, honorable or chivalrous, depending.
0: Yeah. And I guess the flip side to that is um, sort of this, you know, in the second part of your book, you're discussing popular representations of horsemanship. And um, I mean, you look at sport, you look at hunting, but then you move on to discuss, um, and I know you do have a little bit of a background in the history of the circus, and you look at the amphitheater and its significance. Um, could you say a little bit about that? Astley's Amphitheatre, a, a very odd,
1: fun, amazing, bizarre place. Um, what happens to this this military horsemanship is it moves in some degree into uh, the new riding academies that are springing up in London over the, the mid and late 18th century. And In these riding academies, you generally have gentlemen or those who can pay um, learning this sort of militarized equestrianism. And one of the individuals who was learning this, it doesn't fit the mold, really. Um, He was a sergeant of the 15th Light Dragoons, and his name was Philip Astley. And he learned um, this sort of high class horsemanship in the Riding Academy of um, Angelo. Um, Yeah, the Angelo Academy. And he then takes this very high class, high sort of militarized type of riding, and he joins with it trick riding. So standing up on the back of a horse, firing a pistol, um, climbing under the horse's belly while at a full gallop, you know, that, that type of thing. And he establishes Astley's amphitheater, Uh, One of the first, if not the first circus uh, in the world. And while there, he performs a masculinity that, ironically, a little bit, is overtly patriotic and overtly militarized. So he performs himself as a soldier, a defender of the nation, and a defender of, you know, proper
0: British. Mores and virtues, you
1: know, that type of thing.
0: So how how were these um, amphitheater shows perceived? Uh, you know, who what were these hippodramas about and who who was watching them?
1: So the hippodramas, um, so to define what a hippodrama was, it starts out with these kind of trick-riding um, odd little shows. Um, sometimes taking place in the fairgrounds or pub yards and then of course in in the amphitheater and they they evolve over the 18th century into full-on dramatic spectacles on horseback where some of the parts are written for the riders and some of the parts are written for the horses Uh, so you have horses playing dead or serving tea or themselves firing a pistol, which is a physical trait I'm not entirely sure is possible for a horse. But, you know, according to the amphitheater, it it was a standard practice. And um, many people loved it. It's new. It's a spectacle. You have indoor fireworks or you have cannon going off or you have the reenactment of the latest You know, British battle overseas, and it's, you know, rah, rah, Britannia. But other critics feared that these new spectacles were not only corrupting traditional horsemanship practice, and of course the masculinities associated with them, but were also corrupting the audience. So the audience was no longer being taught valuable virtues on stage. They were just. There for spectacle, you know, that kind of thing.
0: What was there an expectation that one would learn values at the circus?
1: <laughs> Philip Astley certainly thought yeah, so. Yeah. He he honestly did. Him and his son John Astley. Um if you read their their highly propagandist um manuals of horsemanship or manual of magic, for example, um, the whole point is to Help the British audience come to understand how to be like them, how to be good at horsemanship, good at you know, ex- you know, um, expressing chivalrous values, and willing and wanting to help join the British military effort abroad. Um, this sort of Propaganda that the Astleys are pumping out through their amphitheater really picks up steam when we get to, um, you know, the early, early, early days of the French Revolution. So then it's like, come on, people of Britain, you must join, support George, our king. You know, fireworks displays,
0: the whole, the whole works. Were were these trends also present? Um, in France at the same time? Or, or is this purely in English? Um, they
1: were. They spectacle? were in France, in France as well. Yeah, um, The Astleys split their time between England and France. So um, they, um, so for example, um, Philip Astley was given the, the title of Professor of Equitation by, by the King of France and he was given special Royal dispensation to perform there at Versailles, and you know the Astleys make a huge splash overseas. Um, So half the half the performance year is in France, half the performance year is in London, Um, and of course the British audiences don't really like that because that association with the French um, does open the Astleys up to accusations of things like effeminacy or not being properly British, for example.
0: So um, it's so fascinating to me, the types of people who were watching these spectacles play out. And I did notice, I, I'm sure that it's, it is evident in the book, and I'm sure you've thought about it at length, but the idea of how class is playing out in these, in these spheres. So those who ride the horses and those who spectate and do these class lines ever cross, for example.
1: The issue of class, yeah, it's kind of an undercurrent throughout the entire book. Um, so with William Cavendish and his circle, the the horsemanship and the performance of horsemanship before an audience was specifically designed to garner admiration from people of the same class, um, from people who it would matter if you had a good reputation with, um, who it would matter if they could bestow honor upon you, for example. Um, Once we start to see horsemanship change in the 18th century, the audiences shift. So you have an almost democratization a little bit of horsemanship. So when you're on the hunt field, um, you could be hunting with people of the aristocracy, the gentry, or even the middling sort, if they could find themselves a horse. Um, so it's starting to mix the, the social orders a little bit. And the same thing is happening in the riding houses. They're not only dedicated to people of the upper upper echelons of society anymore. Like they were with Cavendish, people who could pay could go to these academies. Um, very controversially, of course. <laughs> and then when we get into the world of the circus, you have these traditionally elite forms of riding and of masculine display being performed by someone who, if if you know, if the rumors of the time are true could not read or write. Um, he was not of the upper classes. And while some of his audience members absolutely were, um, many of them were not. So it's a complete mixing of the groups.
0: And so this, yeah, it's so interesting. And this idea of gender performance through this, do you think that crossed class lines at all? Were elite men engaging in horsemanship with different sort of with a different set of eyes than those of the lower classes
1: oh absolutely um so an audience member say in the amphitheater if the person was generally of elite status um or of the military that person or even of the middling sorts, in some cases would have, it was assumed, some quite basic understanding of horses, horsemanship, and what horses could achieve, right? Um, Some people even sort of debunked what Philip Astley and his son were doing with their horses as mere trickery that anybody could do. Not a big deal, not a problem. You then have accounts where... The Philip, where Philip Astley especially is charged with accusations of devilry because of what he can achieve with his horses. So, teaching a horse to fire a pistol, again, I have no idea how, he doesn't go into detail, um, was thought to be an absolutely unbelievable, unsort of understandable act for people who did not have a grounding in horsemanship practice so that would usually mean the common sort so yeah the common sort views him as a devil in disguise and the upper echelons of society are like yeah no problem i could do this it's fine
0: yeah and then you have in the in the fourth part of your book the uh, caricature and the satire related to horsemanship Um, And this figure, Henry Bunbury, uh, um, could you say a little bit about how, I mean, this idea of there being bad horsemanship, I think emerges there.
1: It does. Um, So it's an, uh, Bunbury was a, an author caricaturist, and um, some argue one of the first um, authors of comic strips. And, He spends much of his career taking aim at horsemen. He himself was probably somewhat adept. His writings do illustrate a keen knowledge of uh, the nuances of horsemanship practice. And what he does in his publications, they are um, satirical illustrated books of horsemanship, sort of masquerading as actual books of horsemanship is he pokes fun at this new order of rider and horseman that keeps coming up through the social ranks um this this type of rider and I, and I do use rider instead of horseman here um for a reason um this rider pretends to know all about horsemanship and pretends or thinks he knows about the inner workings of how to train a horse for, you know, the, the top, top, um, levels of, of riding, for example. And in his two books, one is the Annals of Horsemanship and the other one is titled An Academy for Grown Horsemen. Um... He uses a pseudonym, and he writes under the name of Geoffrey Gambado Esquire. And, and dear Geoffrey um, is hopeless when it comes to equestrian knowledge um, and of masculine display. Uh, he famously uh, dies in a tragic shipwreck on his way to Venice, to become master of horse there, which, of course, is, is completely ridiculous because Venice is a city on the water, <laughs> for example. Um, but yeah, so Henry Bunbury is, in essence, saying that traditional horsemanship in the Cavendish vein, so for the upper classes, for you know very high levels of equestrian knowledge, should be maintained at all cost. Anyone else trying to practice it, trying to teach it, or who think that they are masters of it, are completely ridiculous. Just like uh, Jeffrey Gambato.
0: Yeah, and i I think it's a wonderful way to end the book because some of the illustrations you include are truly hilarious. They're so funny. Um, and and I just I have to ask, you know, on a, on a final note, who is reading these? And did the people reading them think they were funny?
1: Absolutely. People loved these things. Um, They were very, very well sold bestsellers. Um, They are reviewed in the newspapers quite quickly after the publication. And the reviewers are just in stitches over what um, Henry Bunbury is saying about the horsemen of, of the UK. And the the name Gambado quickly becomes a shorthand for describing, you know, the antics of poor horsemen. You know, they're they're out in Hyde Park practicing their Gambados, for example. Oh jeez.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah, so wonderful wonderful chapter of your book is the one with the satire in it. <laughs>
1: glad you liked it i had a lot of fun researching that one and um if yeah if anyone's interested read the the two manuals of horsemanship by bunbury they are very funny
0: yeah um so i think we're just about out of time um i'd like to ask you one of our traditional final questions at new books network so what are you working on next
1: well um next there are a couple of rather large projects in the works. Um I am currently working on another monograph that focuses on uh late 18th and early 19th century hippodrama. So thinking about what happens to this odd circus uh performance where horses are expected to perform as actors in their own right. Um as the genre develops into the 18th century, or into the 19th century, and becomes the most popular form of stage production of that period. So that's one, one project. Uh, and the other one, I am doing a joint project with Dr. Kristin Guest, also out of the University of Northern British Columbia. And we are embarking on sort of starting to study the history of equestrian breed breeding and breed organizations Um, and it's around the world so this is a really big project and um, it's kind of in its infancy right now we're questioning what breed is and was how the idea is developing over time and how it's associated and connected to ideas of human identity so that's the two big ones at the moment.
0: Wonderful. They both sound very fascinating. I'm excited to see more from both of those projects. And I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. Well, well, thank Um, you. Yeah. And uh, we hope to speak to you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Tyler.